The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here. Here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is your host, Mary Woods, and today we have for our guest, Dr. Stephen Crawford. Dr. Crawford is a board-certified psychiatrist and associate director of the Center for Eating Disorders at Shepherd Pratt. Dr. Crawford has served in the leadership role with the Center for over 20 years, during which the program has grown into a 26-bed facility and has become one of the leading eating disorder treatment centers in the country. Dr. Crawford completed his medical training at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and continues to serve on the faculty there, where he teaches medical students about the identification and treatment of eating disorders. He also serves as a lead investigator in federally funded research grants the recent past president of the Maryland Psychiatric Society and currently serves chair of the Med-Tease Committee on Scientific Activity. Over the past several years, Dr. Crawford has been named by Baltimore Magazine as one of the city's top doctors and was recently recognized by the Daily Record as one of Baltimore's 2010 Healthcare Heroes. Um, welcome, Dr. Crawford. And let me know, did I uh, mess up the chair of Med-Tease Committee? Uh, it's MedCi. It's the State uh, Medical Society of okay. Maryland. All right. Well, my apologies to all your colleagues for uh, messing that up. But <laughs> welcome, Dr. Crawford. And today we're going to be talking about eating disorders, risk factors to recovery. And I would like to begin with you kind of sharing with our audience um, what is what is uh, an eating disorder. Well, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think in our society, food plays a major role, and we are also a dieting society. So there's a major focus, uh, you know, throughout everyday life of people focused on what they're eating, are they dieting. On any given day in, in America, uh, almost one in two women and almost uh, one in four men are doing something to try to lose weight or to control their eating. So it's a pervasive practice of behavior that people are dieting. Now, so, so you wouldn't call that an eating disorder, and yet when a person's focus on food, weight, and appearance goes to the level that that focus begins interfering with their everyday functioning and their ability to manage uh, day-to-day life activities, at that point, it crosses into what we would consider an eating disorder. Now, there are, you know, three primary eating disorders that people talk about, uh, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And I can go specifically into what makes those diagnoses, if, if you would like. Yes, that would be great. And could you also talk about, is morbid obesity considered an eating disorder? Well, I think that morbid obesity can be uh, an outcome of an eating disorder so that uh, obesity uh, can be the result of uh, years and years of yo-yo dieting. Uh, People with uh, bulimia nervosa 
throughout their lifetime do end up to be at a higher weight than they would have if they never practiced uh, binging and purging behavior. So while it's not listed in, in you know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, for, for mental health as in a mental health diagnosis, obesity can be an outgrowth of eating disordered behavior. Now, now specifically uh, in terms of the eating disorders that, that I referenced, uh, anorexia nervosa uh, is the one where people uh, are at a weight much lower than one would expect for someone's age and height. So this, this has a very uh, specific weight criteria to meet the diagnosis of anorexia. Um, Typically, historically, what has been used is if a person is about 85% of what would be considered an ideal body weight for that person's age and height, at that point, they meet the weight criteria for anorexia. Now, now just beyond the, the weight, however, there is the issue of the person's uh, uh, perception of themselves, their body image. Uh, and in this way, a person's uh, behavior is such that um, when they look in the mirror, they see themselves to be much larger than they really are. And it's not just a sense that they feel fat. It's that they look in the mirror and they actually see themselves as obese. And so this is called a body image distortion, and it really is a, a critical part of the, the diagnosis for an eating disorder of anorexia nervosa. The, uh, the third aspect is that there, um, there's the overvaluing and the over-idealization of thinness and what it means to them in their life so that that becomes the ultimate goal for the individual. And then the fourth criteria currently in, in the DSM is that there is the loss of menses for three consecutive months so that uh, um, uh, the person loses their menstrual period uh, and their cycle for three consecutive months. And that is actually a criteria that when the DSM-5, which is, is, again, the manual that psychiatrists and mental health professionals use to make diagnoses, when, when the next one comes out, that criteria actually will um, uh, not be present. And the reason for that dropping out of the DSM is because, first of all, it's a gender-specific criteria, and we are seeing a lot more men with the diagnosis of anorexia. In addition to that, we're seeing younger and younger kids with anorexia, so that a lot of kids may not have had their first period uh, and yet um, be meeting all the other criteria for anorexia. The third, third issue is that women may be on birth control pills and then be having a period that they, if they weren't on the pill, would not be having because their weight's too low. So there are all these reasons why that really isn't, isn't a great criteria to go by, and so that's not going to probably make the next uh, manual. Um, so then the next criteria is the, I mean, the next diagnosis is bulimia nervosa. And bulimia nervosa is an eating disorder where a person in, engages in uh, first uh, binge eating. And it, to meet the criteria for a binge, there are three specific uh, aspects of the behavior. First, a binge is categorized by, by consuming a large amount of calories. So this would be over 1,000 calories. Uh, at least, 
And the consumption occurs in a very brief amount of time. So the time is the second factor. So a person consumes uh, this large amount of calories in about 15 minutes or so or, or less. Um, and then the third criteria is while they're eating, the individual feels uh, a complete loss of control so that if they wanted to stop, they feel as though they could not stop. And that, that's the, the primary criteria for, for, for a binge. This binge is then uh, followed by what's called a purge. And a purge is a behavior in which somebody is uh, trying to compensate for the calories they took in. So they're trying to counteract those calories, and they do that by um, either inducing vomiting or taking laxatives. And the, the reality is purging is not effective as, as a weight management behavior, but that is something that people with bulimia are engaging in. Um, and then, uh, you know, in addition to the binging and purging, the person, again, is overvaluing the uh, concept of weight and that, that value of weight really determines their own identity. People end up getting on the scale several times a day and when their, their weight goes up, they feel really uh, failed and when their weight goes down, they feel as though things are going in the right direction. So their sense of who they are and their self-worth fluctuates with the number on the scale. Um, so that's bulimia and then binge eating disorder while it currently is not in the DSM as, as a uh, diagnosis outside, it is an experimental diagnosis, a research category diagnosis. In the DSM-5, the, the, the next version, it will actually be a diagnosis. And binge eating disorder is, um, is, is focused in on binge behavior, engaging in consumption of large amounts of food, uh, and that binge behavior uh, leads to overwhelming sense of guilt, remorse, shame, and uh, uh, the, the person is really struggling with uh, um, management of normalized eating. So that, that's... Are um, body image disturbances as prevalent in bulimia and in binge eating disorders? Yes, uh, pe people clearly with bulimia can have a distorted sense of their size. Um, and uh, again, what's really uh, uh, prevalent is, is the overvaluing of their perception of their size so that um, uh, if they feel as though, you know, they've been losing weight for the past uh, month, they're, they're on top of the world and they're feeling really uh, as though... Uh, they can't do anything wrong. And then, then if their sense is that they've been gaining weight, they, they feel ashamed, they, they uh, end up soci socially isolating themselves and avoiding going out in public because they're afraid to be seen that people will recognize that they've gained some weight. One minute. Okay. Um, one of the things that um, early on in my career I was the director of a woman's halfway house and all the women had um, a substance use disorder and this was and I can remember this one woman who came in who who experienced bulimia and um, when initially she first came in I mean everything seemed to be fine and then we the women would wake up and all the cereal would be gone in the morning and then there'd be vomit all over the bathroom. And it was just like living with somebody who was actively drinking. I mean, the behaviors and the, and the, 
and the attitudes and were, I mean, it was striking. And I'm, is that common? It, it is common that, that uh, people will describe a, uh, a sense of almost being addicted to the behavior and uh, sort of feeling frenzied if something uh, comes up that interferes with their uh, uh planned binge and purge if they, if they've planned it. So um, a, a, a a child uh, unexpectedly being sick and unable to go to school and the individual is planning on binging and purging after everybody's left the house, um, you know, a husband coming home early from work, uh, different things that, that are unexpected and can a person's pattern of acting on their behaviors can be very anxiety-producing and overwhelming, and they can uh, really uh, go to great extremes to try to protect the behavior. And, uh, and, and people will describe, after they've binged and purged, such a, such a sense of relief uh, and, and uh, a release of tension um, so, that, so that there is this uh, internal drive to do the behavior. And we'll be right back after our next commercial with more on eating disorders, risk factors, and recovery with Dr. Stephen Crawford. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to The Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Zoom Leadership. It's the big picture issues of the day, up close and personal capabilities of leadership, and a desirable future of constant renewal. Zoom Leadership. It's the economic crisis made clear, patterns and perspectives of leadership, and the importance of changing the way we pursue our future. Join host John Schmidt every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Zoom Leadership. An inside look at what's really going on in business, government, and civil society. Tune in every week on the Voice America Business Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll free number is 1 866 472 5792. That number again is 1 866 472 5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is One Hour at a Time, and I am your host, Mary Woods. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Crawford from Shepherd Pratt, and we are discussing eating disorders, risk factors, and recovery. Um, Dr. Crawford, could you 
identify for us what are what are the risk factors for someone to have an eating disorder? Well, I, I think it's it's very important to know that these are genetic illnesses, uh, so that um, uh, they are uh, inherited through through genes, uh, and the genes actually really set up that the person has the predisposition to potentially develop an eating disorder. And then what happens is uh, the environment around them uh, comes to a point where it sort of cultivates those genes into developing an eating disorder. And some of the things within the environment certainly include um, the at times when people are entering um, puberty and the changes in the body and uh, the sense of needing to develop uh, an identity as one enters adolescence can be extremely stressful. There's a lot of peer-related pressure. Kids are being more and more exposed at that point to their peers and interacting, and there may be because, you know, our society is so focused on uh, weight and appearance there's a focus on uh, how much you weigh compared to your friends. And then if you've entered puberty early uh, and you're more developing and have gained some weight prior to your growth spurt, there may be some pressure towards trying to lose weight. Um, dieting is probably the greatest risk factor for moving into pathological eating and then towards eating disorders. So, so that the most common thing we see prior to the development of an eating disorder is an individual beginning to engage in uh, eating disorder, I mean, into dieting behavior. Um, cer- certainly, um, uh, it's a learned behavior, so if people around you are, are dieting, if, if family members diet, it puts you at greater risk for starting to diet, which can then lead you down the path to the eating disorder. Um, certain sports uh, activities certainly can promote the development of an eating disorder, and there are sports that focus in on appearances. So sports that are judged more by judges as opposed to being timed, so gymnastics, um, uh, divers, uh, and, and uh, those type of sports set people up to be more at risk for development of an eating disorder. Sports where weight and weight classes are identified, so wrestling, uh, jockeys, um, being the uh, flyer on a cheerleading team can uh, also put a focus on setting a person to move towards trying to manage their weight and then trying to manage their weight in a way that becomes unhealthy and ends up developing into a full-blown eating disorder. So there's all sorts of different parts of, of one's life that can come together sort of like in the perfect storm uh, to develop an eating disorder. And our society, you know, Western civilization certainly uh, can contribute as well uh, within the, as, as I referenced earlier, the idealization of thinness. We, we, we bombard people uh, uh, with images every single day. It's, it's estimated that the average person sees about 400 to 600 ads every single day which means over their lifetime they're seeing somewhere from 40 to 50 million ads. And these images of what you're supposed to look like can really impact a person's uh, self-esteem. There was, there's a, a, a statistic that's frequently referenced that, that 70% of women feel significantly worse about themselves 
after only three minutes of looking at a women's magazine. So, we're, you know, the, the ads are designed to make people feel they need to change themselves and need to buy this product to change themselves. And the consequence is that people are constantly faced with what uh, they need to look like as opposed to being accepting of what they do look like. I can remember, I'm dating myself, but I can remember first seeing Twiggy. Yeah. And when she was like the like icon for modeling and remember thinking like, oh my God, I'm never going to look like that and feeling like really bad because no matter what I did, I was never going to look like that. And, and she was really the, the image that turned the whole fashion industry towards this, this extremely excessively thin uh, body image. She uh, really, the photographers loved the way she looked on film, and that, that image took off, and it, it's been that way since. You know, prior to that, it really wasn't that way. Uh, the images of Marilyn Monroe certainly provide much more of a curvaceous figure of uh, beauty than anything that since Twiggy has ever come near. Right. And, like, you think about Esther Williams and some of the other women who were voluptuous and curvy and were seen as glamorous. Yes. Yeah, and that's what what you were described towards, and that's the images that people were presented with at that time. And then, uh, really, uh, uh, obviously, that's not what we see, and that's not what we celebrate as beauty in today's society which is unfortunate because there's a very, very, very small percentage of our society that uh, naturally uh, appear anywhere near what the images of models present like on, on the covers of magazines. I can remember in high school when the guys would wrestle, they would have to weigh in, and the things they would do beforehand so that they would meet their weight to wrestle, and people would say, like, wow, they're really dedicated wrestlers, and nobody was really focusing on what they were doing to maintain their weight. Um, have men always had eating disorders, or have we, and we've just not been aware of them, or is there something happening in the last 20 years that, that men have started to develop more eating disorders? Uh, the reality is that men have always had eating disorders. Uh, historically, it's very hard for, it has been very hard for a man to come forward and acknowledge that he has an eating disorder. They're so commonly uh, stereotyped and thought of as a women's illness that men coming and saying they have an eating disorder can be very difficult. There's also this concept that uh, homosexual men are the ones that develop eating disorders. Uh, and, you know, certainly um, a percentage of men with eating disorders are homosexual, but men that are heterosexual develop eating disorders as well, but that stereotype can make an uh, individual uh, hesitant to step forward and say that they're struggling with this illness. Now, that being said, obviously in recent years, there has been a major shift uh, of what makes a man successful. Historically in our society, a man's... Uh, uh, power, uh, job, and wealth would determine their success in life. And now we have uh, all these men's health magazines that come forward and are bombarding men, just like all the images historically have bombarded women, with what a man is supposed to look like and the ideal body type of a man. So that the concept of of uh, a man being successful is shifting in our society from these other uh, components 
to more of a physical appearance focus, and that puts more pressure on men to achieve these ideal appearances and impacts their sense of self-esteem. And uh, again, that puts men at, at a higher risk for the development of an eating disorder. Um, my primary work has always been with addictive disorders and mental illness, and it seems to me, and maybe it's just because the people I'm skewed because of the people that I work with, but that there is a high prevalence of um, comorbid eating disorders and alcohol or other drugs of abuse disorders. Is that true, or is it just my? No, it, it's absolutely true uh, that that there's a high comorbidity of substance abuse within the field of eating disorders. And the patients with bulimia nervosa are at the greatest risk for that comorbidity. So that uh, about 50% of patients with bulimia have a uh, 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 co-occurring substance use disorder. Um, uh, and, and you have to be aware, an interesting component within in that is that it's not just the classic uh, um, substances that people uh, think of. Um, there's also the atypical substances that people are at risk for abusing, so that there's um, diet pills, um, laxatives, diuretics. These are all products that people would not think of as substances of abuse, but clearly individuals with eating disorders are taking these substances in larger quantities than what would be prescribed and uh, become addicted to the sensations that they deliver so that uh, people end up taking uh, uh, unbelievable amounts of laxatives every day uh, and the colon actually actually becomes addicted and dependent on the laxatives to be able to have a bowel movement. Um, so there are these atypical substances of uh, uh, abuse, but in addition to that, um, well, cigarettes is a, a, a good thing to talk about, too. Um, there's this concept out there uh, that if you smoke, you'll lose weight. And, in fact, uh, you know, historically, cigarettes have been marketed to the public as a weight loss uh, um, uh, tool and an a opportunity to slim down. Um, and so... So the substances end up uh, being used not just for historic reasons, uh, traditional reasons, but for an effort to lose weight. And we'll be right back with um, more with Dr. Crawford um, talking about eating disorders, risk factors to recovery, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. At last, a radio program dedicated to helping women look fabulous and feel fabulous naturally. You'll pick up tips on natural detox, learn about the benefits of whole foods, practice stress and relaxation techniques, and learn more about health, relationships, remedies, and self-motivation. Tune in to Feel and Look Fabulous with Arena. Broadcast live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We promise you, it's women's time well spent. What is whole person healing via body, via mind, and via spirit? It's a dedication to the widest selection of healing practices worldwide whenever possible. Hosted by Professor Rustam Roy, a noted material scientist and the founder of Friends of Health, along with co-host Alison Rose Levy, a leading integrative health journalist and media initiative director for Friends of Health, who will be here each weekend with the most in-depth information about whole person healing from the world's leading practitioners, spokespersons, and major supporters for this viewpoint. Tune in every Saturday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Dr. Stephen Crawford from Shepherd Pratt, and we've been talking with Dr. Crawford about eating disorders, risk factors to recovery. Um, before we went to break, Dr. Crawford, you were talking about um, how the colon be- can become addicted to laxatives. What are the other medical consequences of eating disorders? Well, uh the, the weight loss associated with anorexia nervosa, as a person is losing uh, uh, weight, their uh, metabolism slows down so that the body's trying to conserve energy and not burn calories uh, to protect itself. It's, it's in self-preservation. And so the heart rate slows down, uh, and it's not uncommon for people uh, at severe low body weights to have heart rates in the 30s and 40s. But as your heart rate slows down to that low level, uh, it becomes more at risk for developing an arrhythmia. And then you have uh, actually the, it's not just weight and mass that's lost externally, you're losing weight and mass internally. So the heart is a muscle. And as you're losing weight, the heart wall thins. Um, and that puts you at risk for heart disease as well. Um, the lack of calcium uh, in, in individuals' diets can end up causing uh, people over time to develop osteoporosis. And actually, the, the loss of bone mass can begin very early in the uh, phase of the illness. So six months into the eating disorder, an individual can have lost a significant amount of body mass. And the thing with anorexia and, and eating disorders is they frequently do occur 
in the younger population. So when, when there's a teenager who engages in, in the weight loss and the eating disordered behavior, uh, they can actually have an impact on what their final height will be. Uh, the bone loss can lead to severe osteoporosis. Um, when people are binging and purging, they uh, can very easily develop electrolyte disturbances. And electrolytes are uh, in your blood and they monitor your heart rate and keep the heart rhythm normal. Potassium is an electrolyte that's very important that if you're purging, you lose your potassium, and it can put you at risk for, for a heart attack. Um, you, you lose your body stores of energy so that, you know, your body stores energy, and, and the longest time you go without eating on a daily basis is overnight when you're sleeping, and the body uses the stores of energy that it has to keep the amount of glucose in the blood normal and to keep your body functioning. And if you lose your body stores, it's very hard for the body to survive overnight uh, and make it to the next day. So, so, you know, a lot of times uh, people with severe anorexia can die in the middle of the night uh, because they haven't had the energy stores necessary to make it through the night. Lots and lots of severe medical complications. Eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. And I don't think people know that. No, I think, you know, unfortunately in, in our society, you know, with Hollywood and the way it, it works and all, a lot of times these eating disorders are so glamorized and uh, people, you know, I can't tell you, people will say, you know, I wish I had a little bit of that. And I think it reflects that people aren't tuned into that this is not a lifestyle choice. This is not something that the person uh, wants and, you know, it, it's a successful thing. It, it, it is a mental illness. It has severe lifelong complications and, and problems that, that uh, people with eating disorders, you know, uh, really uh, have a very difficult time in life and, and significant uh, complications. What role does depression play in someone who has an eating disorder? Uh, depression can play a role in, in many ways. One is that an individual that is feeling depressed may turn to weight loss as something they feel they can control and feel good about. So then that as a person's losing weight, they can, it's almost like the weight loss is an antidepressant and can help them feel better about who they are. And patients with uh, bulimia will describe sometimes after purging that sense of relief I referred to, and that can help their mood. So that the, the, the low mood can, can drive the symptoms, and the symptoms can be a way to try to manage either the depression or if there's anxiety, it certainly can be a way to manage anxiety. Then the other thing to be aware of is as a person is losing weight and getting to lower and lower body weight, depressive symptoms are very common a symptom of starvation, so that when you're at a starved state, you have lower energy, you have difficulty with concentration, your motivation goes down, so that uh, uh, depressive symptoms can actually be a, a sign that the person is at a starved state. At low body weights, antidepressants are not as effective. Antidepressants uh, work 
and uh, much much more effectively in individuals who are well nourished, so so that the eating disorder can really impact the treatment of a depression. Um, the other thing to know is that each decade of a person's life, uh, depression is more common in, if you have an eating disorder. So that for every decade you have an eating disorder, you're more likely to develop uh, a comorbid depression. What it's also been my experience that um, that women who have eating disorders and co-occurring substance use disorders have a very high rate of uh, trauma, be it sexual or physical trauma, in their past. That, does that hold nationally? I, I think I think the reality is that uh, trauma and studies have shown that um, trauma and eating disorders certainly there is a significant comorbidity. It's probably pretty close to the comorbidity of trauma with other mental illnesses. Um, so I'm not sure that, that it's any greater in frequency, but we do know that, that if a person has the comorbidity of trauma, it certainly can complicate and, uh, and make the treatment much more challenging for that individual. And also in terms of talking about treatment, which I, I hope we can spend some time really getting into, but, you know, um, if someone has an eating, um, a substance use disorder and a history of trauma, um, working with that person from a, from a therapeutic perspective seems easier than working with someone who has a uh, co-occurring eating disorder, substance use disorder, and trauma. It just feels like there's, there, it just feels heavier, it feels more, um, the person have to, to go through more to recover. Um, you know, it's just almost overwhelming. I, it certainly is very challenging for the individual and, and very overwhelming uh, in that, you, you know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to manage one symptom and deal with the underlying issues of, uh, associated with the trauma, uh, that that's extremely difficult and, and an overwhelming task in itself. What can happen when you have this uh, multiple comorbidity um, is is that people may shift into what's uh, referred to as symptom substitution, so that a person, uh, uh, in, as you describe, may be uh, acting on their eating disorder and when they get into treatment for their eating disorder and start normalizing their eating and managing the eating disorder behaviors and getting towards a healthy body weight or not binging and purging, uh, the cravings and the impulses to drink or abuse drugs go through the roof. And so then they, they turn to alcohol uh, as sort of at that point. And vice versa, somebody entering uh, treatment for their substance abuse and getting that under control and entering sobriety, find that their binging and purging has gone through the roof. And then you can shift into a person's symptom substituting for self-mutilation and cutting themselves. And so then there's this trade-off where they're consistently moving from one self-destructive coping mechanism to another. And the goal in treatment for that individual is to really develop skills to manage all of those impulses at the same time. And that, that's where I think, I think you're right. It gets very overwhelming for that individual to be able to manage all those impulses and keep focused on their goal of recovery. 
And, and I think another complicating factor, too, is that oftentimes these folks are in very um, unhealthy relationships with, with other people, like their, their partner or their significant other. And, and I think that that complicates it, too. There's almost a dependency that occurs, you know, on the um, partner. Right, right. And the, and the partner, you know, is, is challenged in, in trying to support the individual in recovery and helping them move to recovery. And over time, their identity develops as sort of the person that's, that's uh, trying to, to be the aid in the recovery model and, um, or somehow enabling the behaviors. Uh, and then if the person with the illness is making steps towards recovery, there can be confusion within the relationship as what role does this person now serve for you or within the relationship? What is, they have to develop their own new role now if you're moving towards recovery. Um, in terms of families, I, if you could just briefly, and we could talk more about it in our next uh, segment, is there, like, help for families that, um, that are, have a family member that has an eating disorder? Is there someplace families can go for help? Um, yes, yeah. Uh, there, there are centers really across the country that... Uh, uh, people can contact, uh, like the Center for Eating Disorder, um, to learn about treatment, to learn about how to assist their family members. Families are really extremely critical in the recovery of individuals with eating disorders, particularly the younger individuals. So if you have adolescents, family therapy is, is pretty much essential to be able to help an individual move towards recovery. There's a, uh, a treatment model, family-based treatment, where the family really uh, is actively engaged in assisting the individual to normalize their eating and move towards a healthy body weight. And it's really an important component of, of, of the field right now. So, so families are really encouraged to reach out, learn as much as they can. There's the National Eating Disorders Association, and they have a website that has information. Every year, uh, uh, that organization actually holds a conference where families can attend and learn more about eating disorders. Okay, and we'll be right back with Dr. Crawford to learn more about eating disorders, risk factors to recovery. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you concerned about your children's health? Why not involve them in making their life healthier and fun all at the same time? Tune in to Tati's Kitchen. This program will give you and your children creative and healthy ideas in food, exercise, and lifestyle. 
The most common excuse parents have for not keeping their kids healthy is lack of time to cook healthier food and snacks for their kids. It won't take long. Give us an hour every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time for Tati's Kitchen on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. And our guest is Dr. Stephen Crawford from Shepherd Pratt, and we are talking with Dr. Crawford about eating disorders from risk factors to recovery. And I think we've done a good job of kind of setting the stage for um, for treatment and recovery. I, I think that, um, you know, with alcohol and other drugs, it's easy to avoid those or to be abstinent from them, easy rel- being a relative word. But with eating disorders, we have to eat. So it, to me, it's always been much more challenging in terms of recovery. Well, that that's very true. So that the treatment for substance use is abstinence, and people with eating disorders can't abstain. That's that's part of the problem, obviously. So they need to start working towards and learning how to normalize their eating uh, and doing it in moderation. Um, and that is extremely challenging. So that you can't avoid avoid food. You know, with if if your issue is alcohol, um, the goal is to avoid going uh, into bars and develop uh, friendships and relationships with people who, who don't use alcohol. But if you have an eating disorder, you can't stay out of the kitchen and you can't, you know, avoid people that eat. So you really are in a situation of having to Every day, every single day, you have to uh, deal with the substance that you struggle with. Food. What, is, what is the most effective treatment for people with eating disorders? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the, uh, the effective treatment is helping people to uh, accomplish two, two tasks. Uh, one is uh, normalizing their eating patterns and um, maintaining a healthy weight. Uh, so so that, that goal in treatment right there is behavioral, and the focus is through um, uh, different treatment modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy um, and uh, nutritional counseling and, and different methods of treatment. You're helping that person normalize their eating pattern and then the second is really helping the individual um, develop healthy coping skills to manage stress in their life and uh, to develop uh, ways of managing the stress that aren't self-destructive. So, so again, um, uh, the different treatments that have been developed are, are cognitive behavioral therapy, Dialectical behavioral therapy has also been shown to be helpful. Um, uh, motivation to change, which is a form of therapy frequently used in substance use, which is helping the person uh, develop uh, motivation 
to uh, begin uh, changing their patterns of behavior um, has been shown to also be helpful in the treatment of eating disorders. One of the issues is really trying to, uh, and, and, and the other, other modality, as I was referencing earlier, is, is the family-based treatment, which is really critical for, for the younger population with eating disorders. Um, then, then, in addition to that, you have to look at where the person's at within their symptoms and how they're managing those symptoms and what would be uh, of the most appropriate level of care. If a person has gotten down to an extreme low body weight, it may be that they're me medically at a point they should be in an uh, inpatient setting where uh, they're supported in uh, normalizing their eating and gaining weight so that the, the medical consequences can be minimized. And then there's all other uh, levels of treatment along the continuum of care. There's partial hospitalization. Partial hospitalization programs have people coming in the morning and leaving in the evening. And during those programs, they're also normalizing their eating, but they're getting a lot of intensive group therapy that's being used to help them learn coping skills. Then there's um, intensive outpatient programs, which you know are more abbreviated than the partial programs. Uh, uh, at the Center for Eating Disorders at Shepherd Pratt, we have one that is in the evening that allows people to either go to school or go to work, and then in the evening they have dinner and several groups uh, in the uh, intensive program to learn how to uh, manage their eating and develop uh, improved body image and develop these coping skills. And then you have uh, outpatient treatment where people may be in individual therapy, they may be in family therapy or group therapy or nutritional counseling. So there's there's all different levels of care based on where a person's uh, degree of symptoms are and where their health is. And clearly, you always want to provide an environment where the person is able to be safe. What is it necessary to maintain recovery for someone that has an eating disorder? Well, uh, I think it, it requires uh, dedication and commitment uh, because, because what happens for an individual when they're moving towards recovery uh, is that uh, if, if somebody with anorexia is at a low body weight and they're gaining weight, as they're gaining weight, their, their body image is, is getting worse. Uh, you're, you're taking somebody who already thinks they're fat and you're getting them to gain weight so that they think they're getting even fatter uh, and they get more anxious, they get more depressed, they get more overwhelmed. Um, and so you ha it takes uh, really the commitment to work through that. And over time, the body image, which is probably the last thing that improves, over time that body image can, can resolve and the person can move more towards self-acceptance. Uh, as somebody with bulimia nervosa moves towards blocking their binging and purging, their anxiety can also go extremely high and their urges to binge and purge can go, go way up. And uh, if they've been binging and purging for a prolonged amount of time, they may be regurgitating after they eat where they, it just feels like the easiest thing to do would be to just purge and move on. So they have to, despite those urges, work towards not purging. And uh, um, 
it really it takes a supportive network. People need to understand that the individual is not just being stubborn, is not just being oppositional, but that you know they have a serious mental illness and they need understanding and support uh, to help them get through this process. So people with a uh, strong network of support do do better in treatment. Um, I, I think there's some of the things that, that are required to move towards recovery. Um, if people would like to contact you to learn more about eating disorders or your program at Shepherd Pratt, what is the best way for them to reach you? Uh, the, the main number at the Center for Eating Disorders at Shepherd Pratt is 410-938-5252. And also people can uh, go on our, our website um, where we have a uh, information component that they can email us and that's www.eatingdisorders.org. And um, I, that, that would be the easiest way to get in touch with us. They can ask to speak directly to me. And I'm sorry, it's www.eatingdisorder, without the S, .org. And if you go there, there's multiple ways of uh, contacting us, and there's a blog that gives a lot of information, uh, about eating disorders and treatment and recovery. So I, I guess the take-home message from today's um, show is that eating disorders are treatable and they require a long-term investment. There are, there are no short shortcuts for someone in treatment with an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, if you have an eating disorder, I think it's really uh, extremely challenging and next to impossible to get well without support. So you need a solid treatment team uh, with um, a multidisciplinary treatment team that would include a uh, psychiatrist, a therapist, a psychologist, or a social worker, a clinical counselor, um, or, and a, a nutritionist uh, would be supportive, and, and then the family therapy. So you need need really people approaching from, from multiple different ways to help and then uh, to, to recognize that unfortunately uh, recovery is not accomplished uh, like uh, if, if you put a cast on a broken bone and, and then the cast comes off and everything's done. This, this is an ongoing process that needs continuous work and can be long-term. Um, and, and most likely is long-term. The average length of time of an individual in treatment is about five years. So it really takes time and energy and, and commitment for a person to be able to enter the recovery phase. One minute. I can tell you that people that move into recovery end up saying they'll never go back. So, so it really is worth the effort and the, the time and energy to move in that direction. And does research prove that out, that people don't go back? Well, uh, research demonstrates that there are a significant percentage of people that do get well from eating disorders and that, that recovery is possible. I think uh, what, what the reality also is is that there is a certain percentage of people that will develop uh, a very treatment-resistant course such that no matter how much effort and energy they're putting in, it's a daily battle to fight the illness. And uh, so, so there is this percentage that's very treatment resistant, 
but, but a majority of individuals do get well. Um, there is a certain percentage of people within that, that group that may over time have setbacks and need to re-enter treatment to stabilize their symptoms and regroup and get back on track, they, for the most part, will do it well as well. Dr. Crawford, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon and sharing with us your expertise on eating disorders. Um, I found it very informative, and I'm sure our audience did too. It was a real pleasure, and I thank you for having me. You're welcome. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll catch you next week at One Hour at a Time. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion, One Hour at a Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.